0: Hello and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we examine the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, is new technology making conventional military assets less relevant? And I am joined now by the author of one of the pieces in this issue, Peter Mansour, Retired Army colonel is the General Raymond E. Mason, Jr., Chair of Military History at The Ohio State University and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Peter, thanks for being with us. Uh, it's a pleasure. Okay, so the prompt in this issue of Strategica, does new technology, drones, cyber warfare, satellites, etc., reduce the importance of conventional military assets to which you answer – by quoting one of the most famous military thinkers of all time, Carl von Clausewitz. War may have its own grammar, but not its own logic. Okay, explain that and how it relates to this question.
1: Well, certainly. What Clausewitz was saying is that the the grammar of war, the nuts and bolts of how military operations are conducted, can change over time and, and does change over time. And we've seen that throughout history and not just recently. But that the underlying uh, logic of war, that is, it's fought for political reasons and, uh, and, and the underlying strategy that, uh, ways and means and how they relate to ends, that doesn't change. And al- also the fundamental nature of war, uh, with its fog, its friction, its uncertainty, the role of chance, uh, because we are h- humans and, and, and human, and, and How we operate as humans affects war. Uh, You you cannot never just turn it into some sort of mechanical exercise in which more technology equals victory.
0: Are there historical analogies for what we're seeing now with the people who are perhaps excessively enthusiastic about drone cyber warfare, all of these new innovations where people uh, people did think with past technologies that it, it would change the logic of war and were proved wrong?
1: I think the advent of nuclear weapons is instructive. Many people thought that was the end of warfare because they were so devastating and, uh, and they were a game changer in terms of uh, total war that we would never see conflict again. And yet I think the period after the advent of nuclear weapons has seen more warfare than any other period with the exception of the two world wars.
0: Now, there's an interesting point that you make in this piece. This latest revolution in military affairs, all this high-end technology that we're talking about, uh, isn't really a widespread phenomenon. There there are only a few advanced militaries that employ it, and really the US has gone further with it than anyone else. So what should we take away from that? I mean is that a cause for triumph? If we've got all these fancy gadgets and no one else can beat us on the battlefield, at least on those terms, is is that a recipe for perpetual peace? How should we think about that?
1: If only if it were so, mm-hmm. I think two things will happen. Um, the United States no doubt is the world leader in terms of precision guided munitions and the intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance systems so necessary to make them function. Uh, but other nations will will try to catch up, uh, most notably Russia and China and China has the kind of economy uh, and an economy robust enough to catch up to us in, uh, in fairly short order, I would suspect. So this is not going to be a situation where the United States is going to maintain this sort of technological dominance forever. The other thing that's happening is other nations that perhaps don't have the technological wherewithal to compete with the United States in that realm will develop different kinds of ways to achieve their objectives uh, short of going toe-to-toe with the United States forces conventionally. And we've seen this in Iraq and Afghanistan with right. irregular warfare um, and guerrilla war, which uh, has been pretty effective against u s forces despite their technological prowess.
0: So as we're recording this podcast in the year marking the one hundredth anniversary of the beginning of world war one it's it's tough not to linger on this passage from your piece, quoting you at the turn of the twentieth century. Informed pundits deduce that another general conflagration was impossible given the close intertwining of European economic and financial systems. The end of history 1.0 died in the ashes and bloodshed of World War I. So here we are, the centennial year, and there have been a lot of writers and intellectuals drawing parallels between now and then about sort of an underlying volatility in the world. And you read that passage and it's impossible – Not to think about the talk that has been fashionable over the past couple of decades, this idea that uh, globalization, the sort of relationships born out of international commerce, make it difficult to imagine that we'll have great power conflicts of the kind that we've had in the past. Basically the idea being that we'll just – we might have a few sort of irascible backwaters that haven't caught up with the 21st century, throwing stones now and again, but the sort of grand conflicts of the past – are, are over. Is that too sweeping a vision? Is that reminiscent of this false hope from 100 years ago?
1: Well, I hate to say it, but in my view, it is too sweeping of a vision, and it is uh, very reminiscent of the same sort of chatter that occurred in the uh, the final decade of the 19th century and the first decade of the 20th. That is, the intertwining of global commerce and finances was, uh, was so uh, tight that uh, even if war occurred, it would have to be short because otherwise economies would collapse. And we we hear the same sort of thing that the globalization of the 21st century has tied the world economies together so tightly that another large conflagration is is just unthinkable. Um, and unfortunately, history suggests that uh, given uh, that man is and women are still in charge of the international system. Mistakes will be made, and invariably we'll see uh, another war, and uh, God forbid, but uh, perhaps another world war, and it will be, if anything, even deadlier than the last.
0: Peter, when we talk about the enthusiasm for technology, for the drones and cyber warfare, um, et cetera, are we, are we trying to make war too antiseptic? Is that is that part of the problem here, the idea that can all be guys behind a computer screen instead of grunts in the field because it just feels more civilized that way
1: I'm not sure that the issue is making it antiseptic what the president what the administration any administration wants is to be able to uh, conduct uh, military operations with minimal political risk Mm. and so what drones do is it allows you to target your enemies uh, terrorists or whoever uh, without putting uh, humans at risk, and if you, and so you don't risk getting people shot down, getting people killed. And if a drone gets shot down, we've just lost some money, but we ha- haven't lost uh, a, a human life, and that that sort of puts these operations beyond the purview of the American people. And then, uh, so there's very little political risk in conducting them. I would say there's a, a lot more international political risk uh, as we we. As our reputation um, is at stake in terms of how we conduct these operations overseas, but politically, uh, domestically, uh president uh, can conduct drone attacks overseas. And there's really very little blowback uh, compared to committing American troops to war.
0: It's interesting that you bring it up as a response to political exigencies, because that leads me to my, my next question. Do you have a sense of whether that kind of techno-enthusiasm is as great within the military ranks as it is within the civilian leadership?
1: Um, you know, it is, and it depends on service mm-hmm. and what branch of service uh, you, you look at. But the Navy and the Air Force, uh, they're very enamored with technology. Uh, parts of the Army are as well, but uh, for the most part, uh, the warfighters in, in the Army and the Marine Corps realize, given the history of warfare since 9-11 if not before then as well that invariably it's going to be the the infantrymen and the tankers and the other combat armed soldiers on the ground who are going to have to um, uh, win the war Uh, and that's not what you see when you look at the air force or the navy who think of air-sea battle and and using uh, precision-guided munitions and standoff weapons and so forth Um, but they are their vision of warfare is very much a targeting exercise. the thought that if we just destroy enough things or the right things that we can win. and I think that's a, a historical view of warfare if there was one.
0: So final question for you, pulling together all this context and everything we've we've talked about as a policy matter. Um, if you're talking to political leadership, military leadership, national security team uh, what are what are the what are the policy takeaways? Here, I mean, keeping all of these all of these factors in mind that you know, things always maybe develop a little bit differently than is anticipated. And there are inherent limitations on all this technology. What what does that mean for setting defense policy going forward? What do policymakers need to be keeping in mind?
1: Right, I don't want to come across as somehow uh, anti-technology. I right. think drones and. Cyber operations and, and all the advanced technology of the United States is a wonderful thing for our military, and we need to embrace it. Um, I think the policy takeaway, though, is that it's, it, all they are are different means of conducting operations. They are not a strategy. They're not a substitute for strategy. And they're not a substitute for a robust uh, presence on the ground if your intention is to actually uh, reshape human affairs. Because blowing things up is one thing, but actually creating a situation on the ground conducive to your political interests in the long run is going to take is going to be done the old-fashioned way, with the infantrymen on the ground taking and holding ground and affecting uh, and affecting people where they live, where they work, and where they sleep.
0: All right. Our guest has been Peter Mansour, retired Army colonel, the General Raymond E. Mason, Jr. Chair of Military History at Ohio State University and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his piece and those by other members of the group by visiting strategica at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Peter, thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure.
0: For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.